All right. Well, welcome to the first week. So, uh, lesson two, session one. All right. So, if you read the introduction, uh, you'll probably recognize we structured this class a bit confusingly. All right. And that was on purpose because what we wanted to do is we wanted to cover the lives of six people, but only have you come to four class sessions. All right. And so by the time you got to this point, uh, you should have read uh, lesson one and watched the video on, poly on Polycarp. If you have not done that, um, sorry. So you just kind of missed out, right? No, uh, we can, uh, we'll send out a remind, like not a reminder email, but we'll send out an email after this class session with uh, what you need to kind of catch you up up to this point. I've been told as well that if you bought a, uh, a physical book, so if you paid $10 for the class, but you have not yet picked up your book, those are stacked back there on the table. Please, it, this isn't if you bought the digital version and you're like, oh, I'm just gonna sneak a physical one. Uh, because we don't have enough for that. But those are back there. If you got a digital version, um, but have not yet, like somehow you lost the link or the email or whatever, on the, on the sign-up sheet, or not the sign-up sheet, but the, on the sheet back there that has the names and email addresses of people who bought physical books, you can write your name down and your email address, and Sarah will send you uh, the PDF on that if you lost that. So I'm gonna be honest, I did not expect this many people to sign up for a class that is at all oriented around church history. And so there's a little part of me that kind of wants to just ask like why you're here, but it's a bit too, <laughs> it's a bit too big. This is, this, I'm just being honest, this is why we ran out of, uh, out of books was because I bought like the lowest number that kind of made sense and was just like, well, I just don't want to have a ton left over because who's going to come to this class, right? And, but here you are. And so thank you so much for coming. And I, for the life of me, can't figure out why you're here. But I'm glad you are. Uh, and at least like I'm just not talking to an empty room, okay? But I am glad that you're here. And so this evening, we're going to look, we're going to see the lives and the deaths of two women who lived over 1,800 years ago. And then we're gonna ask the question, what should their lives and what particularly about their deaths and the way that they died, how should that still impact us today? And I talked a lot in the chapter for this week about the impact that women have had on the church and the, and the, and the, the impact of, that women have had on the spread of the gospel throughout history. And the reason why I really wanted to take this, you know, chapter two, this direction was because quite honestly, it's only been within the last decade, perhaps, that I myself have come to understand uh, the real impact that our sisters who have gone before us have had on the gospel. And not only, not just on the gospel, but that the, like, that the gospel spread around the world was in large part spread on the backs of women. And for the longest time, for most of my life, I was totally unaware of that reality. And honestly, it, it frustrated me to a certain degree that I didn't know that until fairly recently. Now, admittedly, part of the reason why why I didn't know that, maybe perhaps why you didn't know that, is because we simply have more documentation of the great men throughout history, and we're going to see some of those men. We saw it with Polycarp, we're going to see it with Gregory the Great and George Leal, men like that, but uh, we have more documentation. And so what we want to do tonight is we want to look at the lives and the deaths of our sisters, Perpetua and Felicity. Now, I don't know what you do while you're driving down the road. Uh, it's often the case 
perhaps daily where I'll be driving and I'm kind of that weird person who's just kind of, I should be looking at the road, but I'm off, I'm off, like often looking at the other cars, you know, kind of like next to me, kind of like looking in the cars like a weirdo, right? And, and part of the reason why I'm doing that is because I'm just sort of amazed that here I am driving down the road with these other people and in those cars are people who have their own lives, Right? Like, they have jobs. They, ha- they know people that I don't know. They have their own, like, aspirations and their, their own hopes and their own problems. I wonder, like, where, where are they going to? Like, where are they driving right now? Are they driving home? Are they going out to eat? Are they driving to the hospital? They have their own problems. They have their own joys. It's almost like the people in the cars that we pass on the road are, like, their own little worlds, with its own life and its own network of relationships that you and I like really know nothing about. And perhaps if we kind of pulled over and were able to talk to these people, we might discover that our lives overlap in more ways than we actually think. If we actually knew them and got to know them. But here we are surrounded by people and passing by people that this might be unbeknownst to us and maybe unbeknownst to them, like this might be their last day on earth. That tomorrow, that person that we drove by or drove beside will no longer be living. And we don't know either way if that's true or not because we, don't, we know so little about them. And quite honestly, the lives of Perpetua and Felicity are a bit like that. They're a bit like those people that we drive by on the road because, because before their martyrdom, the, the entire reason we know anything about them is actually not really because of their life. It's not because of the way that they lived. It was actually because of the way that they died. And so up to this point, what we're going to talk about mostly is about how they died. Up to this point, they were just regular people driving down the road. Nothing necessarily spectacular about their lives, nothing necessarily spectacular about their contributions, right? To, you know, it's, it's not like they wrote these, you know, tremendous, great systematic theology, all these kinds of things. It was, it was simply the way in which they died and the grace with which they died made them stand out. Now, what we do know is that Felicity, so we have Perpetua, we have Felicity. What we do know, and the little that we actually know about their lives you know, before their death, is that Felicity was an unmarried slave who at the time of her arrest was eight months pregnant. And given that she would later die for her faith, it's probably right to assume that Felicity came to faith in her owner's household and was discipled as a, as a catechumen. Now, before you go, catechumen, is that a spice? No, that's cumin. Uh, catechumen is uh, like a $10 word. You might have enough I don't know that you have enough letters to use it in Scrabble, so that's a bummer. But uh, literally what a catechumen is, is it's simply referencing someone who was a believer who was being trained in the faith but was not yet baptized. So they came to faith, they're being trained in the faith, but had not yet been baptized. That's a catechumen. And that's what Felicity likely, who Felicity likely was. And it's also, it also isn't known whether Felicity was a slave in Perpetua's household, but, it, but that's probably likely as well because they were arrested at the same time and they died at the same time. And it's, it's kind of easy for us to imagine martyrs as, as maybe being older. I don't know why, maybe you don't think that, but often in my mind, I think of martyrs as being these kind of older people. I mean, Polycarp, who we saw, you know, before this, he was, you know, in his 80s. But Felicity, at the time of her death, 
was around 16 or 17 years old. Now, Perpetua was 22 years old and married. So Felicity is eight months pregnant, not married, 16 or 17. Perpetua was 22 years old and married at the time of her arrest. And she had a newborn son and was herself the daughter of an unbelieving but affluent, influential father. And so he was, he was well-educated. He was respected in the community. And as a result, Perpetua grew up in this really affluent household and was, and was afforded an education that was uh, um, quite rare for women at that time. And so she grew up as an educated woman in an influential, educated household. And so Perpetua was the daughter of a wealthy father, and Felicity was likely one of their slaves. And, and it's, at that, it's at this time in history that sons would have been more valued than daughters. But what we know from the account of Perpetua's arrest is that she had a unique bond with her father. And he had a unique bond with her. That was really strange considering the cultural norms at the time. Because at one point, after she was arrested, uh, he was pleading with her. Now, remember, he's an unbelieving father. She's his believing daughter. And he's pleading with her. And at one point, he, he's pleading with her to renounce her faith in order to avoid the arrest. He told her that he valued her more than her brothers. And so he's, he's really, like, that's such a countercultural statement for a father to make. But he's really trying to play every possible card he can to make sure that his 22-year-old daughter doesn't get arrested. And he's really trying to pull on her heartstrings, being like, all your brothers? Everyone else would think I'd love your brothers more? I love you more than all of your brothers, Right? And it's, in fact, her father's disposition towards her, this countercultural disposition that a father would have toward a daughter, that the Roman proconsul Hilarianus had him beaten for behaving in such an undignified, un-Roman way. Thomas Heffernan comments this. He says, Hilarianus's violent outburst is triggered by his shame that an educated male would stoop publicly to beg his daughter to renounce her allegiance to this cult, referring to Christianity rather than simply ordering her to abandon her foolishness. Now, to be honest, we don't know the exact circumstances that surrounded Perpetua and Felicity coming to faith, and we don't know the situation that surrounded their arrest. And you go, then why in the world? We don't know anything about these people. Why in the world do you pick it? We don't know anything about their lives. It's because of the way that they died. But during, because during her arrest, and particularly during her imprisonment, Perpetua journaled, about what happened. And then once she got to the point where she's walking uh, into, the, into the arena, the believers who were witnessing their deaths basically picked up her journal and continued the account of what happened. And what I'd like to do, kind of like what I did with Polycarp, is, is I want to read to you a, a pretty lengthy excerpt from Perpetua's journal in her own words. And here's what she writes. While we were still with the prosecutors, my father, because of his love for me, wanted to change my mind and shake my resolve. Father, I said, do you see this vase lying here, for example, this small water pitcher or whatever? I see it, he said. And I said to him, can it be called by another name other than what it is? He said, no. In the same way, I am unable to call myself other than what I am. I I am a Christian. Then my father, angered by this name, threw himself at me in order to gouge out my eyes. 
But he only alarmed me, and he left defeated, along with the arguments of the devil. After a few days, we were taken into the prison. I was terrified because I had never before known such darkness. Oh, cruel day. The crowding of the mob made the heat stifling, and there was the extortion of the soldiers. Last of all, I was consumed with worry for my infant in that dungeon. Then the blessed deacons who ministered to us arranged by a bribe that we should be released for a few hours to revive ourselves in a better part of the prison. Then all left the prison and sought some time for themselves. I nursed my baby, who was now weak from hunger. In my worry for him, I spoke to my mother concerning the baby and comforted my brother. I entrusted my son to them. I suffered grievously when I saw how they suffered for me. I endured such worry for many days, and I arranged for my baby to stay in prison with me. Immediately, I grew stronger, and I was relieved of the anxiety and worry I had for my baby. On another day, while we were eating lunch, we were suddenly rushed off for a hearing. We arrived at the forum, and immediately a rumor circulated throughout the neighborhood surrounding the forum, and a huge crowd had gathered. We climbed the platform. The others, having been questioned, confessed. Then they came to me, and my father appeared in that very place with my son, and he dragged me from the steps, saying, Offer the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. And Hilarianus, the procurator, said, Spare the gray hair of your father. Spare your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the health of the emperors. I will not, I answered. Hilarianus then said, Are you a Christian? I am a Christian, I replied. And when my father persisted in his efforts to change my mind, Hilarianus ordered him to be thrown to the ground and beaten with a rod. My father's suffering made me sad, almost as if I had been beaten. I grieved for his, pitiful, for his pitiable old age. Then Hilarianus pronounced sentence on all of us and condemned us to the beasts. And we descended the platform and returned cheerfully to prison. But because my baby had become accustomed to nurse in my breast and to stay with me in prison, I immediately sent Pomponius, the deacon, to ask my father for the child. But my father would not give him back. As for Felicity, the Lord's favor touched her in this way. She was now in her eighth month, for she was pregnant when she was arrested. As the day of the games drew near, she was in agony, fearing that her pregnancy would spare her, since it, would not, since it was not permitted to punish pregnant women in public, and that she would pour forth her holy and innocent blood afterwards, along with common criminals. But also her fellow martyrs were deeply saddened that they might leave behind so good a friend to travel alone on the road to their shared hope. And so two days before the games, they joined together in one united supplication, groaning, and poured forth their prayer to the Lord. Immediately after their prayer, her labor pains came upon her, and when, because of the natural difficulty associated with an eight-month delivery, she suffered in her labor, and she gave birth to a baby girl, whom a certain sister brought up as her own daughter. And it's at this point that the believers pick up the journal and continue to write. And here's what they say. The day of their victory dawned, and they marched from the prison to the amphitheater, joyously as if going to heaven, their faces radiant. And if by chance they trembled, it was from joy and not from fear. Perpetua followed with a shining face and a calm step as a wife of Christ and darling of God, and the intensity of her stare caused the spectators to look away. Likewise, Felicity rejoiced that she had given birth safely so that she might fight with the beasts, advancing from blood to blood, from, mid, from the midwife to a gladiator, now to be washed after childbirth and a second baptism. And when they were led to the gate, 
they were forced to put on costumes. The men, those of the priests of Saturn, and the women, those of the priestesses of Ceres. But that noble-minded woman, Perpetua, fiercely resisted this to the end. She said, we came here freely so that our freedom might not be violated, and we handed over our lives so that we would not be forced to do anything like this. We had this agreement with you. Injustice recognized justice. The tribune agreed that they should be brought and dressed simply as they were. Perpetua was, was singing a hymn. The young men with them pronounced judgment upon the Roman governor. The crowd, angered by this, demanded that they be whipped along a line of gladiators. And they gave thanks that they had obtained some share in the Lord's sufferings. For the young women, however, the devil prepared a wild cow, not a traditional practice, matching their sex with that of the beast. And so stripped naked and covered only with nets, they were brought out again. The crowd shuddered, seeing that one was a delicate young girl and that the other had recently given birth as her breast still dripping with milk. So they were called back and dressed in unbelted robes. Perpetua was, th was thrown down first and fell on her loins. And sitting up, she noticed that her tunic was ripped on the side. And so she drew it up to cover her thigh, more mindful of her modesty than her suffering. Then she requested a pin, and she tied up her, her tousled hair, for it was not right for a martyr to suffer with disheveled hair, since it might appear that she was grieving in her moment of glory. Then she got up, and when she saw Felicity crushed to the ground, she went over to her, gave her her hand, and helped her up, and the two stood side by side. The cruelty of the crowd now being satisfied, they were called back to the gate of life. Then after calling her brother, in the catechumen, she spoke to them, saying, Stand fast in the faith and love one another, and do not lose heart because of our sufferings. The martyrs got up unaided and moved to where the crowd wished them to be. First they kissed each other so that the ritual of peace would seal their martyrdom. The others in silence and without moving received the sword's thrust. Perpetua, however, screamed out in agony as she was pierced between the bones, and when the right hand of the novice gladiator wavered, she herself guided it to her throat. So, what should we learn from our sisters, Perpetua and Felicity? Perhaps a hundred things, but I just want to hit on three. The first one, the gospel transcends all earthly identities. The gospel transcends all earthly identities. You have Perpetua, a member of the elite class, comforting Felicity, a slave. You see, standing in that arena that day, we're not a rich woman and a poor woman. Was not an educated woman and an uneducated woman woman, not a married mother and a single mother. No, standing in that arena that day were Christians, were sisters, were disciples, were daughters of God, were co-heirs with Christ, were holy saints filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, this is what Paul meant when he said in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 28, when he says, for those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. Slave or free, male or female, 
since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds, heirs according to the promise. What is Paul saying here? What does this mean? This means, does this mean that when we become Christians, that all of the things that distinguish us, like, don't matter anymore? Like, are we somehow, when we come to Christ, are we, like, somehow squished through this Plato mold? And everything that might be unique about us, that might be distinct about us, about our upbringing, our history, our ethnicities, everything about us, does that just get flattened like when we become a Christian? Like our backgrounds don't matter? Nothing could be further from the truth because this is what Paul says. So Paul wrote Galatians. Same guy says this in 1 Corinthians 7. Here's what he says. He says, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. When anyone, was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter either. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let, let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. In other words, to be a Christian doesn't mean that those things that are true of your earthly identity aren't true anymore. What it means to be a Christian is that those things that are true of our earthly identities, the things that actually distinguish us from one another, what to be a Christian is, is that it reprioritizes all of those differences that we have under the common banner of Christ. So whether some of us are rich or some of us are poor, black or white, esteemed, rejected, smart or slow, young or old, in Christ... What is most true about us and is therefore the basis of our identity is not that we are any of those things. It's that we are Christians. Remember what Felicity told her father. Can you call a water pitcher by any other name? And one of the things that should be true of the church, and perhaps, perhaps you, you notice this by your connection group. Have you noticed some of you have really weird connection groups, okay? I'll just say it. I come to some of your connection groups. Some of your, y'all's connection groups are weird, right? And you walk away, you're going, man, those people are weird. It's like, well, yeah. And they're saying that about you, by the way. So, uh, you know, that's just kind of how it works. And here's the thing. That's actually great. And here's why. It's because it would make all the sense in the world for people who look the same, act the same, think the same, dress the same, have all the same preferences, to get together and hang out. That would make all the sense in the world. That doesn't make anyone go, what in the world is going on there? No, it's in fact, in the midst of our differences, of our uniquenesses, of the things that actually make us different, that, different as, that as they're reprioritized under the banner of Christ, that those of us who are so different would actually come together and love each other genuinely. It's not in spite of our differences that we have Christian community. It's actually because of our differences, but our, unite, our unitedness under the banner of Christ, that the church actually works. It's because we're not ultimately united by hobbies or interests or similarities or status. We're united by Christ. A slave and an aristocrat, standing together, dying together, and now living together in eternity. Only the gospel can do that. You see, our church should be such, our connection groups should be such, that when people look at those groups and look at us as a church, they say, only the gospel could do that. 
how in the world could people who are so radically different love each other so deeply? Only the gospel can do that. So that's number one. Number two, what should we see from the lives of perpetual infelicity? We should see the supernatural brotherly and sisterly bond of believers for the strength and perseverance of our faith. The supernatural brotherly and sisterly bond of believers for the strength and perseverance of our faith. Remember what Perpetua said? After she goes over to Felicity, picks her up, she looks around, says, then after calling her brother in the catechumen, she spoke to them saying, stand fast in the faith and love one another and do not lose heart because of our sufferings. You see, here's what we see, is that because our ultimate identity in Christ, our closest bond and our ultimate obligation is to our spiritual family. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 when he was teaching outside. Do you remember this? Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. Look at what he says. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, just like our earthly identities aren't dissolved, but are instead reprioritized under the gospel, our earthly family isn't dissolved but the gospel reprioritizes that as well. And this is a fine line to draw, but I think it's a fine line in part because I think there's a golden calf in the Cedar Valley that almost none of us want to talk about. And that's the golden calf of the biological family. Now you might say, well, Jake, doesn't, doesn't God love families? Doesn't God love marriages? Doesn't God? Yeah. Yeah, he does. But here's the thing. Many of us, if we're really honest, if we look at the way that we think, if we look at the way that we actually live and behave, we will do backflips to serve and accommodate and prioritize and value our earthly family, our spouses, our kids, our parents, our grandparents. But when it comes to the family of God, when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will, in a variety of ways, view our church family as optional. We'll view our church family as optional while viewing our earthly family as essential. But do you see what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, especially in a time when your family bonds were ultimate? I mean, we love our families now. Not only was your connection to your earthly family really important back then, it, was, it wasn't just important for like, your comfort, your sense of you know, familial bonds, it was important for your actual survival. Like if you didn't have a family, then you were among the most vulnerable in society. And yet when Jesus' brothers and mothers want his attention at the expense of his care for his followers, what he doesn't do is he doesn't look at his followers and he look at his disciples and say, sorry guys, my time's up. Mom and brothers are here. Gotta go help them. No, what does he say? He says, my spiritual family is just as, if not more important, than my biological family. 
Because biological family ties are important, but they are temporary. But the bonds of the spiritual family are forever. And what this means for us is that if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you come into this place, come to church, go into your connection groups, and as we interact as men and women, we aren't just like people occupying the same space. This means is that because of the gospel, we are in a deeper way than biological family. We are brothers and sisters. And we need each other. And here's what I don't mean. I don't, I don't simply mean that us men need each other as brothers and you women need each other as sisters. And here's, here's what I mean. Is that we men need our sisters. And you women need your brothers. You see, in a hyper-sexualized culture that says if men and women are going to interact, it's inevitably going to become sexual, the gospel radically reorients the nature of our relationships in such a way that we as the church can show the world that because of the gospel, the inevitable outcome of our of our cross-gender relationships is not objectification, but is instead family love and care and concern and encouragement and comfort. I was, I was speaking at a retreat a couple weeks ago, and then the, where, where I was staying, so all the sessions were happening in this other building, and where I was staying, they called it the hotel. It wasn't really a hotel. Um, it was like rooms, you know, which is different, right? Uh, but where I was staying, like down the hall was another kind of like large group gathering area where they were having a women's conference at the same time. There was, there was this huge camp. And so um, they, they were having their main sessions down the hall from the room I was staying in. And, and one morning, as I walk out of my room to kind of make my way over to the other building, uh, echoing down the hallway was the sound of a couple hundred women down the hall singing hymns. Like they were starting one of their sessions, they were singing together. And the sound of their singing just like echoed down the hall. And, and it, was, it, it was as if their voices just like grabbed me and just like made me, made me stay there. And it, it'll be a long time before I forget this moment because it, it wasn't just that, it wasn't just the sound of their voices. Honest, and I'm, you know, I'm not charismatic enough to know what to do with this, but I don't know. But it, it, it was as if the Lord himself was saying, stay right here and be ministered to by your sisters. And so I closed my eyes. I stood there in the hallway. I probably looked like a freak, right? Like, because I'm not the only room in this hallway, you know. I don't think anyone else, you know, came down, but... I just stood there with my eyes closed as the, as the sweet voices of my sisters just like washed over me the truth of the gospel being sung. And I couldn't, I couldn't help but think in that moment, this was just a couple weeks ago, 
I thought of perpetual infelicity. I thought, I thought of my wife. I, th- I thought of the women of our church, many of you, my sisters, who are tremendous examples of faith and faithfulness to me, your brother, to us, your brothers. You see, Perpetua looked at her brothers and sisters, some of them biological, but all of them spiritual, and she loved and encouraged them to the very end. You see, men, we don't just need our brothers in Christ. We do need brother, brotherly relationships in Christ. But men, we also need sisterly relationships in Christ too. And women, you don't just need sisterly relationships. Those are absolutely important, but you also need brotherly ones as well. So finally, what's the third thing that we can see from their lives, particularly from their deaths? Is that the faithful deaths of our brothers and sisters should spur us on to faithful living. Faithful dying of our brothers and sisters should spur us on to faithful living. I I didn't read this earlier, but the way that, that the account of their death ends, this was written by the Christians who were watching this. They wrote this. It'll be up on the screen. Here's what they say after they've died. O bravest and most blessed martyrs, O truly called and chosen for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, anyone who praises, honors, and adores his glory should surely, surely should read these deeds, which are no less worthy than the one than the old ones for building up the church. For these new deeds of courage, too, may witness that one and the same Holy Spirit is always working, even among us now, along with God, the Father Almighty, and his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom is glory and endless power forever and ever. Amen. And it's this kind of faithful witness in the face of death is still available for our encouragement today. You see, in America, I think it's, we're, we're pretty insulated from the kind of persecution towards Christianity that is, is very much more than like being uncomfortable. That's generally, at least at this point in our history, that's kind of generally the, the, the sentiment, the reaction, the amount of pushback we get as Christians. is it's, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, perhaps, you know, a heated argument. Very, very few times does it become physical. Whereas around the world today, many of our brothers and sisters experience not just social implications for being believers, but physical ones as well. It was a, it was a, couple, a, couple, fall, a couple falls ago, I went to the Timothy Initiative uh, Global Summit. So the Timothy Initiative, uh, if you don't know, is an organization that we support pretty heavily as a church who, whose main uh, goal is to raise up indigenous, pa- indigenous pastors in, in unreached areas. And it was an incredible time. I, I, my theology had to, had to catch up with what I was hearing, right? And so the, the things that God was doing, is doing around the world was incredible. And at one point in the conference, um, they, and I don't know how they did this, but they organized this massive Zoom call that had like 200, I mean, that's just one of the pages, right? And yeah, forgive the crappy iPhone photos, you know. But uh, I was just like, 
it was all at the same time, all around the world. And these, many of these people, and it was just page after page after page. I think this next one, this next one was, was an underground church. Uh, maybe I didn't put that in there. There we go. This next one, yeah, it's the worst quality of them all, but you get the point. Like, <laughs> that, that is an underground church, like, meeting at night. Like, the, I, don't know, I don't know how we got this, right? But we're talking with that. These are brothers and sisters. It was live, like real time. We're having a conversation with them as they are in hiding, but gathering together. Not, I didn't have, a, I don't have a picture of this one, but like right after this, they they zoom in with a guy who is who is crying, pleading for prayer because his life and the life of his sons are are in that moment seriously being threatened for the sake of the gospel, because he would have the audacity to plant a church in their village and to share the gospel. He and his sons are being harassed and threatened with death. And he's asking for our prayers. Let's not stick our heads in the sand. Let's not be unaware of what God is doing in our world, and let's not be unaware of how our brothers and sisters around the world are faithfully and joyfully living and dying for the sake of Christ. The whole, the whole point of this awareness and this participation in the gospel work that they are part of is not, is not to make us as like American Christians feel guilty for our first world problems. Like that's, that is not the point. The point is, is that their faith and faithfulness in the midst of a really difficult situation is to spur on our faith and faithfulness in our situation today. Some of the greatest joys, I, I got to talk to some of these men and women and some of their greatest joys was not in me feeling guilty that I wasn't suffering as much as they were. Their greatest joy was that their suffering was inspiring and spurring me on in faithfulness. So a few ways you can do this. This this is a terrible way to end something like this because it sounds like an advertisement. It's really not. But a few ways, if you go, how, how can I become aware? How can I at least have set before my eyes brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering in many similar ways as perpetual infelicity. You can sign up for the Timothy, the Timothy Initiative newsletter, organization we love and partner with, uh, tti.org, I think it is. Just Google TTI, you'll get there. Um, you can sign up for the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter. It's in the name, Voice of the Martyrs. You can sign up for Mark and Amanda Jackson's newsletter. Uh, just email markbenjackson, one word, at protonmail.com. Now, Mark and Amanda aren't in hiding. They're not, you know, underground or anything like that. But they are in a very different situation than us. And the Lord is doing amazing things. Here's another thing. You go, uh, so, something I learned more recently than I'd like to admit is that if I don't care about something, the best way to care about something is to start giving money to it. And pretty soon, turns out, Jesus wasn't lying when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? Like, it took me a long time to actually think he was serious, you know? It was just like, oh, if I don't care about something that I should care about, probably the best and perhaps fastest way to get me to care about it is to put my money where my mouth is and start giving to the thing that I don't care about yet but should. And so perhaps, I, I mean, as you interact with some of these, and there are, pro there are probably many more, find things that God is doing around the world, brothers and sisters around the world who have, who have needs for the gospel work that they're doing, 
and start giving your money towards that. And you will be amazed. You will be amazed at how quickly you start to actually care about what God is doing around the world. And you will also be amazed about how quickly your own faith is encouraged by their witness. So a few questions for you as you break up into some discussion groups. They'll be up on the screen. Uh, They'll also be on the tables that are kind of dispersed throughout the building. But what about your life, abilities, personality, or past do you see as your primary identity rather than your identity in Christ? The gospel transcends earthly identities. And what is it about your life that you see as being the basis of your identity that actually should be your in Christ identity? Number two, in what ways do you intentionally or unintentionally devalue your spiritual family? And what needs to happen to change that? And then number three, how are you aware of and caring for our brothers and sisters around the world? And how will you grow in this care and awareness?